Chapter Three of the Nigger of the Narcissus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Nigger of the Narcissus by Joseph Conrad. Chapter Three, Part Two. Hours passed. They were sheltered by the heavy inclination of the ship from the wind that rushed in one long unbroken moan above their heads, but cold rain showers fell at times into the uneasy calm of their refuge. Under the torment of that new infliction a pair of shoulders would writhe a little. Teeth chattered. The sky was clearing, and bright sunshine gleamed over the ship. After every burst of battering seas, vivid and fleeting rainbows arched over the drifting hull in the flick of sprays. The gale was ending in a clear blow, which gleamed and cut like a knife. Between two bearded shellbacks, Charlie, fastened with somebody's long muffler to a deck ring-bolt, wept quietly, with rare tears wrung out by bewilderment, cold, hunger, and general misery. One of his neighbors punched him in the ribs, asking roughly, "'What's the matter with your cheek? In fine weather there's no holding you, youngster.' Turning about with prudence, he worked himself out of his coat and threw it over the boy. The other man closed up, muttering, "'Twill make a bloomin' man of you, sonny. They flung their arms over and pressed against him. Charlie drew his feet up, and his eyelids dropped. Sighs were heard as men, perceiving that they were not to be drowned in a hurry, tried easier positions. Mr. Crichton, who had hurt his leg, lay amongst us with compressed lips. Some fellows belonging to his watch set about securing him better. Without a word or a glance, he lifted his arms, one above another, to facilitate the operation, and not a muscle moved in his stern, young face. They asked him with solicitude, "'Easier now, sir?' He answered with a curt, "'That'll do.' He was a hard young officer, but many of his watch used to say they liked him well enough because he had such a gentlemanly way of damning us up and down the deck." Others, unable to discern such fine shades of refinement, respected him for his smartness. For the first time since the ship had gone on her beam ends, Captain Alliston gave a short glance down at his men. He was almost upright, one foot against the side of the skylight, one knee on the deck, and with the end of the vang round his waist, swung back and forth with his gaze fixed ahead, watchful, like a man looking out for a sign. Before his eyes the ship, with half her deck under water, rose and fell on heavy seas that rushed from under her, flashing in the cold sunshine. We began to think she was wonderfully buoyant, considering. Confident voices were heard shouting, She'll do, boys! Belfast exclaimed with fervor, I would get a month's pay for a draw at a pipe. One or two, passing dry tongues on their salt lips, muttered something about a drink of water. The cook, as if inspired, scrambled up with his breast against the poop water cask and looked in. There was a little at the bottom. He yelled, waving his arms, and two men began to crawl backwards and forwards with the mug. We had a good mouthful all round. The master shook his head impatiently, refusing. When it came to Charlie, one of his neighbors shouted, "'That bloomin' boy's asleep!' He slept as though he had been dosed with narcotics. They let him be. 
Singleton held to the wheel with one hand while he drank, bending down to shelter his lips from the wind. Wamibo had to be poked and yelled at before he saw the mug held before his eyes. Knowles said sagaciously, "'It's better'n a tot of rum.' Mr. Baker grunted, "'Thank ye.' Mr. Crichton drank and nodded. Duncan gulped greedily, glaring over the rim. Belfast made his laugh when, with grimacing mouth, he shouted, "'Pass it this way. We're all tay-toddlers here.' The master, presented with the mug again by a crouching man, who screamed up at him, "'We all had a drink, Captain,' groped for it without ceasing to look ahead, and handed it back stiffly, as though he could not spare half a glance away from the ship. Faces brightened. We shouted to the cook, "'Well done, doctor!' He sat to leeward, propped by the water cask, and yelled back abundantly, but the seas were breaking in thunder just then, and we only caught snatches that sounded like providence and born again he was at his old game of preaching we made friendly but derisive gestures at him and from below he lifted one arm holding on with the other moved his lips he beamed up to us straining his voice earnest and ducking his head before the sprays suddenly someone cried where's jimmy and we were appalled once more. At the end of the row, the boatswain shouted hoarsely, "'Has anyone seen him come out?' Voices exclaimed dismally, "'Drowned, is he?' "'No, in his cabin. Good Lord! Caught like a bloomin' rat in a trap. Couldn't open his door. Aye, she went over too quick, and the water jammed it. Poor beggar. No help for him. Let's go and see.' "'Damn him! Who could go?' screamed Duncan. "'No one expects you to,' growled the man next to him. "'You're only a thane.' "'Is there half a chance to get at him?' inquired two or three men together. Belfast untied himself with blind impetuosity, and all at once shot down to leeward quicker than a flash of lightning. We shouted all together with dismay, but with his legs overboard he held and yelled for a rope. In our extremity nothing could be terrible, so we judged him funny kicking there, and with his scared face. Someone began to laugh, and as if hysterically infected with screaming merriment, all those haggard men went off laughing, wild-eyed, like a lot of maniacs tied up on a wall. Mr. Baker swung off the binnacle stand and tendered him one leg. He scrambled up rather scared, and consigning us with abominable words to the devil. You are, oh, you're a foul-mouthed beggar, Crake, grunted Mr. Baker. He answered, stuttering with indignation, Look at him, sore, the dirty bloomin' images, laughing at a chum going overboard. Call themselves men, too. But from the break of the poop the boatswain called out, Come along and Belfast crawled away in a hurry to join him. The five men, poised and gazing over the edge of the poop, looked for the best way to get forward. They seemed to hesitate. The others, twisting in their lashings, turning painfully, stared with open lips. Captain Alliston saw nothing. He seemed with his eyes to hold the ship up in a superhuman concentration of effort. The wind screamed loud in sunshine, Columns of spray rose straight up, 
and in the glitter of rainbows bursting over the trembling hull the men went over cautiously disappearing from sight with deliberate movements they went swinging from belaying pin to cleat above the seas that beat the half-submerged deck their toes scraped the planks lumps of green cold water toppled over the bulwark and on their heads they hung for a moment on strained arms with the breath knocked out of them and with closed eyes then letting go with one hand balanced with lolling heads trying to grab some rope or stanchion further forward the long-armed and athletic boatswain swung quickly gripping things with a fist hard as iron and remembering suddenly snatches of the last letter from his old woman little belfast scrambled in a rage spluttering cursed nigger wamibo's tongue hung out with excitement and archie intrepid and calm watched his chance to move with intelligent coolness when above the side of the house they let go one after another and falling heavily sprawled pressing their palms to the smooth teak wood round them the backwash of waves seethed white and hissing all the doors had become trap-doors of course the first was the galley door the galley extended from side to side and they could hear the sea splashing with hollow noises in there the next door was that of the carpenter's shop they lifted it and looked down the room seemed to have been devastated by an earthquake everything in it had tumbled on the bulkhead facing the door and on the other side of that bulkhead there was jimmy dead or alive the bench with a half-finished meat safe saws chisels wire rods axes crowbars lay in a heap besprinkled with loose nails a sharp ad stuck up with a shining edge that gleamed dangerously down there like a wicked smile the men clung to one another peering a sickening sly lurch of the ship nearly sent them overboard in a body belfast howled here goes and leaped down archie followed cannily catching at shells that gave way with him and eased himself in a great crash of ripped wood there was hardly room for three men to move and in the sunshiny blue square of the door the boatswain's face bearded and dark wamibo's face wild and pale hung over watching together they shouted jimmy jim from above the boatswains contributed a deep growl you wait in a pause belfast entreated jimmy darlin are you alive the boatswain said again all together boys all yelled excitedly wamibo made noises resembling loud barks belfast drummed on the side of the bulkhead with a piece of iron all ceased suddenly the sound of screaming and hammering went on thin and distinct like a solo after a chorus he was alive he was screaming and knocking below us with the hurry of a man prematurely shut up in a coffin we went to work we attacked with desperation the abominable heap of things heavy of things sharp of things clumsy to handle the boatswain crawled away to find somewhere a flying end of a rope and wamibo held back by shouts don't jump don't come in here muddlehead remained glaring above us all shining eyes gleaming fangs tumbled hair resembling an amazed and half-witted fiend gloating over the extraordinary agitation of the damned the boatswain adjured us to bear a hand and a rope descended 
we made things fast to it and they went up spinning never to be seen by man again a rage to fling things overboard possessed us we worked fiercely cutting our hands and speaking brutally to one another jimmy kept up a distracting row he screamed piercingly without drawing breath like a tortured woman he banged with hands and feet the agony of his fear wrung our hearts so terribly that we longed to abandon him to get out of that place deep as a well and swaying like a tree to get out of his hearing back on the poop where we could wait passively for death in incomparable repose we shouted to him to shut up for god's sake he redoubled his cries he must have fancied we could not hear him probably he heard his own clamour but faintly we could picture him crouching on the edge of the upper berth letting out with both fists at the wood and the dark and with his mouth wide open for that unceasing cry those were loathsome moments a cloud driving across the sun would darken the doorway menacingly every movement of the ship was pain we scrambled about with no room to breathe and felt frightfully sick the boatswain yelled down at us bear a hand bear a hand we too will be washed away from here directly if you ain't quick three times the sea leaped over the high side and flung bucketfuls of water on our heads then jimmy startled by the shock would stop his noise for a moment waiting for the ship to sink perhaps and began again distressingly loud as if invigorated by the gust of fear at the bottom the nails lay in a layer several inches thick it was ghastly every nail in the world not driven in firmly somewhere seemed to have found its way into that carpenter's shop there they were of all kinds the remnants of stores from seven voyages tin tacks copper tacks sharp as needles pump nails with big heads like tiny iron mushrooms nails without any heads horrible french nails polished and slim they lay in a solid mass more inabordable than a hedgehog we hesitated yearning for a shovel while jimmy below us yelled as though he had been flayed groaning we dug our fingers in and very much hurt shook our hands scattering nails and drops of blood we passed up our hats full of assorted nails to the boatswain who as if performing a mysterious and appeasing rite cast them wide upon a raging sea we got to the bulkhead at last those were stout planks she was a ship well finished in every detail the narcissus was they were the stoutest planks ever put into a ship's bulkhead we thought and then we perceived that in our hurry we had sent all the tools overboard absurd little belfast wanted to break it down with his own weight and with both feet leaped straight up like a springbok cursing the clyde shipwrights for not scamping their work incidentally he reviled all north britain the rest of the earth the sea and all his companions he swore as he alighted heavily on his heels that he would never never any more associate with any fool that hadn't savvy enough to know his knee from his elbow he managed by his thumping to scare the last remnant of wits out of jimmy we could hear the object of our exasperated solicitude darting to and fro under the planks he had cracked his voice at last and could only squeak miserably his back 
or else his head rubbed the planks, now here, now there, in a puzzling manner. He squeaked as he dodged the invisible blows. It was more heart-rending even than his yells. Suddenly, Archie produced a crowbar. He had kept it back, also a small hatchet. We howled with satisfaction. He struck a mighty blow and small chips flew at our eyes. The boatswain above shouted, Look out! Look out there! Don't kill the man! Easy does it! Wamibo, maddened with excitement, hung head down and insanely urged us, Ho! Stroke him! Ho! Ho! We were afraid he would fall in and kill one of us, and hurriedly we entreated the boatswain to shove the blamed fin overboard. Then, all together, we yelled down at the planks, Stand from under! Get forward! And listened. We only heard the deep hum and moan of the wind above us, the mingled roar and hiss of the seas. The ship, as if overcome with despair, wallowed lifelessly, and our heads swam with that unnatural motion. Belfast clamored, For the love of God, Jimmy, where are ye? Knock, Jimmy, darling. Knock, you bloody black beast. Knock. He was as quiet as a dead man inside a grave, and, like men standing above a grave, we were on the verge of tears. But with vexation, the strain, the fatigue, with the great longing to be done with it to get away, and lie down to rest somewhere where we could see our danger and breathe. Archie shouted, Give me room! We crouched behind him, guarding our heads, and he struck time after time in the joint of planks. They cracked. Suddenly the crowbar went halfway in through a splintered oblong hole. It must have missed Jimmy's head by less than an inch. Archie withdrew it quickly, and that infamous nigger rushed at the hole, put his lips to it, and whispered, Help! in an almost extinct voice. He pressed his head to it, trying madly to get out through that opening one inch wide and three inches long. In our disturbed state we were absolutely paralyzed by his incredible action. It seemed impossible to drive him away. Even Archie, at last, lost his composure. "'If ye don't clear out, I'll drive the crowbar through your head,' he shouted in a determined voice. He meant what he said, and his earnestness seemed to make an impression on Jimmy. He disappeared suddenly, and we sat to prizing and tearing at the planks with the eagerness of men trying to get at a mortal enemy, and spurred by the desire to tear him limb from limb. The wood split, cracked, gave way. Belfast plunged in head and shoulders and groped viciously. "'I've got him! Got him!' he shouted. "'Oh, there, he's gone! I've got him! Pull at my legs! Pull!' Wamibo hooted unceasingly. The boatswain shouted directions. "'Catch hold of his hair, Belfast. Pull straight up, you two. Pull fair!' We pulled fair. We pulled Belfast out with a jerk and dropped him with disgust. In a sitting posture, purple-faced, he sobbed despairingly. "'How can I hold on to his bloomin' short wool?' Suddenly Jimmy's head and shoulders appeared. He stuck halfway and, with rolling eyes, foamed at our feet. We flew at him with brutal impatience, we tore the shirt off his back, we tugged at his ears, we panted over him, and all at once he came away in our hands as though somebody had let go his legs. With the same movement, without a pause, we swung him up. His breath whistled, 
He kicked our upturned faces, he grasped two pairs of arms above his head, and he squirmed up with such precipitation that he seemed positively to escape from our hands like a bladder full of gas. Streaming with perspiration, we swarmed up the rope, and, coming into the blast of cold wind, gasped like men plunged into icy water. With burning faces, we shivered to the very marrow of our bones. Never before had the gale seemed to us more furious, the sea more mad, the sunshine more merciless and mocking, and the position of the ship more hopeless and appalling. Every movement of her was ominous of the end of her agony and of the beginning of ours. We staggered away from the door, and, alarmed by a sudden roll, fell down in a bunch. It appeared to us that the side of the house was more smooth than glass, and more slippery than ice. There was nothing to hang on to but a long brass hook to use sometimes to keep back an open door. Wamibo held on to it, and we held on to Wamibo, clutching our jimmy. He had completely collapsed now. He did not seem to have the strength to close his hand. We stuck to him blindly in our fear. We were not afraid of Wamibo letting go. We remembered that the brute was stronger than any three men in the ship. But we were afraid of the hook giving way, and we also believed that the ship had made up her mind to turn over at last. But she didn't. A sea swept over us. The boatswain spluttered, Up and away, there's a lull. Away aft with you, or we will all go to the devil here. We stood up surrounding Jimmy. We begged him to hold up, to hold on, at least. He glared with his bulging eyes, mute as a fish, and with all the stiffening knocked out of him. He wouldn't stand, he wouldn't even as much as clutch at our necks, he was only a cold black skin loosely stuffed with soft cotton wool, his arms and legs swung jointless and pliable, his head rolled about, the lower lip hung down enormous and heavy. We pressed round him, bothered and dismayed, sheltering him, we swung here and there in a body, and on the very brink of eternity we tottered all together with concealing and absurd gestures, like a lot of drunken men embarrassed with a stolen corpse. Something had to be done. We had to get him aft. A rope was tied slack under his armpits, and, reaching up at the risk of our lives, we hung him on the four-sheet cleat. He emitted no sound. He looked as ridiculously lamentable as a doll that had lost half its sawdust, and we started on our perilous journey over the main deck, dragging along with care that pitiful, that limp, that hateful burden. He was not very heavy, but had he weighed a ton, he could not have been more awkward to handle. We literally passed him from hand to hand. Now and then we had to hang him up on a handy belaying pin to draw breath and reform the line. Had the pin broken, he would have irretrievably gone into the southern ocean, but he had to take his chance of that, and after a little while, becoming apparently aware of it, he groaned slightly, and with a great effort whispered a few words. We listened eagerly. He was reproaching us with our carelessness in letting him run such risks. Now, after I got myself out from there, he breathed weakly, there was his cabin, and he got himself out. We had nothing to do with it, apparently. 
no matter we went on and let him take his chances simply because we could not help it for though at the time we hated him more than ever more than anything under heaven we did not want to lose him we had so far saved him and it had become a personal matter between us and the sea we meant to stick to him had we by an incredible hypothesis undergone similar toil and trouble for an empty cask that cask would have become as precious to us as jimmy was more precious in fact because we would have had no reason to hate the cask and we hated james wait we could not get rid of the monstrous suspicion that this astounding black man was shamming sick had been malingering heartlessly in the face of our toil of our scorn of our patience and now was malingering in the face of our devotion in the face of death our vague and imperfect morality rose with disgust at his unmanly lie but he stuck to it manfully amazingly no it couldn't be he was at all extremity his cantankerous temper was only the result of the provoking invincibleness of that death he felt by his side any man may be angry with such a masterful chum but then what kind of men were we with our thoughts indignation and doubt grappled within us in a scuffle that trampled upon the finest of our feelings and we hated him because of the suspicion we detested him because of the doubt we could not scorn him safely neither could we pity him without risk to our dignity so we hated him and passed him carefully from hand to hand we cried got him yes all right let go and he swung from one enemy to another showing about as much life as an old bolster would do his eyes made two narrow white slits in the black face the air escaped through his lips with the noise like the sound of bellows we reached the poop ladder at last and it being a comparatively safe place we lay for a moment in an exhausted heap to rest a little he began to mutter we were always incurably anxious to hear what he had to say this time he mumbled peevishly it took you some time to come i began to think the whole smart lot of you had been washed overboard what kept you back hey funk we said nothing with sighs we started again to drag him up the secret and ardent desire of our hearts was the desire to beat him viciously with our fists about the head and we handled him as tenderly as though he had been made of glass the return on the poop was like the return of wanderers after many years amongst people marked by the desolation of time eyes were turned slowly in their sockets glancing at us faint murmurs were heard have you got him after all the well-known faces looked strange and familiar they seemed faded and grimy they had a mingled expression of fatigue and eagerness they seemed to have become much thinner during our absence as if all these men had been starved for a long time in their abandoned attitudes the captain with a round turn of a rope on his wrist and kneeling on one knee swung with a face cold and stiff but with living eyes he was still holding the ship up heeding no one as if lost in the unearthly effort of that endeavour we fastened up james wait in a safe place mr baker scrambled along to lend a hand mr crichton on his back and very pale muttered well done and gave us jimmy in the sky 
a scornful glance, then closed his eyes slowly. Here and there a man stirred a little, but most of them remained apathetic in cramped positions, muttering between shivers. The sun was setting, a sun enormous, unclouded and red, declining low as if bending down to look into their faces. The wind whistled across long sunbeams that, resplendent and cold, struck full on the dilated pupils of staring eyes without making them wink. The wisps of hair and tangled beards were gray with the salt of the sea. The faces were earthy, and the dark patches under the eyes extended to the ears, smudged into the hollows of sunken cheeks. The lips were livid and thin, and when they moved it was with difficulty, as though they had been glued to the teeth. Some grinned sadly in the sunlight, shaking with cold. Others were sad and still. Charlie, subdued by the sudden disclosure of the insignificance of his youth, darted fearful glances. The two smooth-faced Norwegians resembled decrepit children, staring stupidly. To leeward, on the edge of the horizon, black seas leaped up towards the glowing sun. It sang slowly, round and blazing, and the crests of waves splashed on the edge of the luminous circle. One of the Norwegians appeared to catch sight of it, and, after giving a violent start, began to speak. His voice, startling the others, made them stir. They moved their heads stiffly, or turning with difficulty, looked at him with surprise, with fear, or in grave silence. He chattered at the setting sun, nodding his head, while the big seas began to roll across the crimson disk, and over miles of turbulent water the shadows of high waves swept with a running darkness the faces of men. A crested roller broke with a loud hissing roar, and the sun, as if put out, disappeared. The chattering voice faltered, went out together with the light. There were sighs. In the sudden lull that follows the crash of a broken sea, a man said wearily, Here's that bloomin' Dutchman gone off his chump. A seaman, lashed by the middle, tapped the deck with his open hand with unceasing quick flaps. In the gathering grayness of twilight, a bulky form was seen rising aft, and began marching on all fours with the movements of some big cautious beast. It was Mr. Baker passing along the line of men. He grunted encouragingly over every one, felt their fastenings. Some, with half-open eyes, puffed like men oppressed by heat. Others mechanically, in a dreamy voice, answered him, Aye, aye, sir. He went from one to another, grunting, Ah, see her through it yet, and unexpectedly, with loud angry outbursts, blew up knolls for cutting off a long piece from the fall of the relieving tackle. Ah, ashamed of yourself. Relieving tackle. Don't you know better? Och, able seaman, och. The lame man was crushed, he muttered. Get something for a lashing for myself, sir. Och, lashing, yourself. Are you a tinker or a sailor? What? Och, may want that tackle directly. Och, more used to the ship than your lame carcass. Och, keep it, keep it now you've done it. He crawled away slowly, muttering to himself about some man being worse than children. It had been a comforting row. Low exclamations were heard, Hello, hello, 
Those who had been painfully dozing asked with convulsive starts, What's up? What is it? The answers came with unexpected cheerfulness. The mate is going bald-headed for lame Jack about something or other. No. What has he done? Someone even chuckled. It was like a whiff of hope, like a reminder of safe days. Duncan, who had been stupefied with fear, revived suddenly and began to shout. "'Ear him! That's the way they talk to us. "'Why don't ye it him, one of yer? "'It him! It him! Coming to mate over us. "'We are as good men as e. "'We're all going to L now. "'We have been starved in this rotten ship, "'and now we're going to be drowned for them black-hearted bullies. "'It him!' He shrieked in the deepening gloom. "'He blubbered and sobbed, screaming, "'It him! It him!' The rage and fear of his disregarded right to live tried the steadfulness of hearts more than the menacing shadows of the night that advanced through the unceasing clamor of the gale. From aft, Mr. Baker was heard, Is one of you men going to stop him? Must I come along? Shut up! Keep quiet! cried various voices, exasperated, trembling with cold. You'll get one across the mug from me directly, said an invisible seaman in a weary tone. I won't let the mate have the trouble. He ceased and lay still with the silence of despair. On the black sky, the stars, coming out, gleamed over an inking sea that, sprinkled with foam, flashed back at them the effervescent and pale light of a dazzling whiteness borne from the black turmoil of the waves. Remote in the eternal calm, they glittered hard and cold above the uproar of the earth. They surrounded the vanquished and tormented ship on all sides, more pitiless than the eyes of a triumphant mob, and unapproachable as the hearts of men. The icy south wind howled exultantly under the somber splendor of the sky. The cold shook the men with a resistless violence as though it had tried to shake them to pieces. Short moans were swept unheard off the stiff lips. Some complained in mutters of not feeling themselves below the waist, while those who had closed their eyes imagined they had a block of ice on their chests. Others, alarmed at not feeling any pain in their fingers, beat the deck feebly with their hands, obstinate and exhausted. Wamibo stared vacant and dreamy. The Scandinavians kept on a meaningless mutter through chattering teeth. The spare Scotsmen, with determined efforts, kept their lower jaws still. The West Countrymen lay big and stolid in an invulnerable surliness. A man yawned and swore in turns. Another breathed with a rattle in his throat. Two elderly, hard-weather shellbacks, fast side by side, whispered dismally to one another about the landlady of a boarding-house in Sunderland, whom they both knew. They extolled her motherliness and her liberality. They tried to talk about the joint of beef and the big fire in the downstairs kitchen. The words dying faintly on their lips ended in light sighs. A sudden voice cried into the cold night, O oh Lord! No one changed his position or took any notice of the cry. One or two passed with a repeated and vague gestures, their hand over their faces, but most of them kept very still. In the benumbed immobility of their bodies, they were excessively wearied by their thoughts, which rushed with the rapidity and vividness of dreams. 
Now and then, with an abrupt and startling exclamation, they answered the weird hail of some illusion. Then again, in silence, contemplated the vision of known faces and familiar things. They recalled the aspect of forgotten shipmates and heard the voice of dead and gone skippers. They remembered the noise of gaslit streets, the steamy heat of tap rooms, or the scorching sunshine of calm days at sea. End of chapter 3, part 2